I want to start with a tragic story. The story of Elizabeth Smart. Some of you may remember her from the news. In the early hours of June 5th, 2002, a man by the name of Brian David Mitchell broke into the home of Edward and Lois Smart. Salt Lake City, Utah. He snuck into the bedroom where Elizabeth Smart, she was 14 years old, and her little sister, nine-year-old Mary Catherine, were sleeping. And at knife point, he kidnapped Elizabeth. Over a period of nine months, in a sick and twisted parody of marriage, the kidnapper raped Elizabeth repeatedly, calling her his second wife. And it is a terrible and tragic story. Thankfully, she was rescued. And since that time, she's gone on to graduate college, to get married, to have children. She's written two books. And she's developed a foundation that focuses on child abduction, recovery programs, and legislation. She is a remarkable survivor. She was raised in a religious Mormon family. And so she absorbed a set of teachings about sexual abstinence and purity, very similar to what many Christians are taught at home and in the church throughout America. In her memoirs, Smart makes this painful connection between the way she was taught about sex and her reaction to being raped. Now, she's very clear. She knew that her family loved her. She never doubted that. But she connected her virginity, understood as her untouched body, to her worth as a human being. And so there is this heart-wrenching section in her memoirs where she writes that despite knowing that her family loved her, she can remember in the midst of the darkest moments, and I'll quote, a terrible idea seeped into my soul. If my family knew what the man was doing to me, would they still want me? This question, it cut me to the core. Imagine you have a beautiful vase. Then imagine that you accidentally knock it off a table and it shatters into pieces on the floor. This, this is her words. We all understand that it isn't the vase's fault. It was pushed off the table and shattered. But still, it's broken. It is worthless. That is how I felt. It was not my fault, but I was broken. No one would want me anymore, so even though I knew the bearded man could kill me at any time, I reached a point where I no longer cared. So on top of this horrendous tragedy of being abducted and the violence committed against her, 
Smart has been public about how the feeling that she had been ruined made her incapable of leaving. It made her resist escaping. These feelings of being broken, they line up with a certain way of thinking about sex and what's right and what's wrong. And unfortunately, that way of thinking too often has been substituted in the church for a Christian view of sex. But it's false. It's heretical. People are not crystal vases. Women and girls are not crystal vases. People are not commodities. Women and girls are not commodities. Human beings and human bodies should never, never be bought or sold. Our value, our worth, our purpose in the world can never, ever, ever be attached to some supposed purity of body. As if we were merchandise instead of sons and daughters of a king. This is where we need to start. When we're thinking about God, sex, and human flourishing. Sometimes culture and the church have spoken about sexual purity in a way that makes virginity into a thing that a person should cling to in order to retain value. It tells the graceless lie that we are more valuable people If we have this thing called purity. It tells the demonic lie that our market value is what makes us precious to God. And of course, there is much that is healthy and holy and happy about the situation in which two people come to a marriage without prior sexual experience. But that in no way has anything to do with their value as marriage partners. Men and women, teenagers, children are precious. And your preciousness is unconditional. There is nothing we can do. Nothing that can happen to us that can take away our status as free, image-bearing children of God. And so, while much of our conversation over the next nine weeks is going to drift to the level of ideas and understanding we should never forget. This is playing out on an emotional level on many people in this room. And that what we're talking about, even when we drift into idea land, it is always close to home. And it is very personal. And so while I'm sure that there are many of us here who have felt the condemnation of others for choices we've made, as well as guilt over impulses. We can't help but feel your value and your worth, your purpose in the world can never, ever be attached to your supposed sexual purity. And that's where we need to start. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, we're told this, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Part of what this means is that God redeems us from what has been stolen from us 
are violently taken from us or that we voluntarily forfeited. God makes the broken whole. He heals the sick and he opens us up again and again to the garden of delights if we will let him. Now with that on the table, let me give you an overview of tonight. I'm going to spend nearly all of my time talking about why we're here tonight. Why are we making the enormous inconvenient choice, our last free hours before the week comes crashing in on us, why in the middle of busy lives are we paying the price of inconvenience and time? Why are we giving energy and time for a series of teachings about the Christian view of sex and gender and relationships? And so for the, basically the rest of this lecture I give, I'm going to lay out five reasons for this series and that we're here and I hope you keep coming. And then at the very end, I'll take a couple of minutes to map out the plan for the the weeks ahead. Okay. Why are we doing this? Why are we having this conversation? Why have I spent more hours than I know getting ready for this over the last several years? Why are we doing this? After all, one of the criticisms of Christianity is that Christians are hung up on sex. Why are we always going on and on about it? Shouldn't we care more about other really important problems? Why do we act like sexual sin is the only thing that we take seriously? And to be honest, there's truth in this criticism. We should be concerned with much, much more than sex. But sex is significant. See, there's two things going on in that criticism. One is... Um, there's other problems in the world to which we say yes, but another is sex isn't one of the big ones to which we say no to that criticism. We're talking about sex, first of all, five reasons. First of all, because sex really does matter. It is not incidental. It is not something that we shake off as though it doesn't really touch the core of our existence. If you have a Bible... Find 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you don't, uh, bring one next week. If you have one, still one. And bring that stolen one next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, we'll come back to this multiple times in the weeks ahead. There's a lot here that's complicated. And remember, we're dealing with the 2,000-year-old document. We should do some work with this. But I, what I want to point out is that Paul, who's writing this to the church in Corinth, he names sexual sin four times in a list of ten sins. Uh, the one for homosexuality, it actually has two different descriptions there, and most modern English translations pushes them into one. Four 
times out of a list of 10 types of sin. He takes sexual sin seriously because it is so intimate. It is so personal. Ultimately, it is bodily. Look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians verse six, chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So other sins, big ones, important ones, outside the body. But sexual immorality is a sin against the body itself. Now, these are not the words of a prude. This is not the words of someone who has a problem with bodies. These are the words of someone who understands that our bodies are real and what happens in the body is intimate and personal. It matters. Sex matters because your body matters. Because your body is at the heart of what it means to be a human. In fact, if we tried to take the essence of you out of your body, you would not be a human anymore. Sex matters to God because bodies matter to God. Because God created our bodies and he has good plans for us as people with bodies. A very important example of this is in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. If you have a Bible, turn there. This is the record of a defining moment in the history of God's people. Up to this point, the church has been composed of primarily Jews. Jewish people. But around the time of Acts chapter 15, it was beginning to open itself up to people who were not Jews. And that was complicated. So the church was feeling its way forward, trying to sort out what it means to be a church of people from many nations. And there were these questions around the Jewish law. Would the new people in the church who weren't Jews be bound by the full weight of the Jewish laws in the Old Testament? Most specifically, would they need to go through the Jewish ritual of circumcision? Now, before you laugh and think that's no big deal, just remember, if you were one of the Gentile converts whose genitals were being discussed, you would have thought it was a big deal. <laughs> so these early Christians made a crucial decision. If a, if a convert, if a Christian, if a person becomes a Christian, they will not be bound by the Jewish law. They will have the freedom in Christ to come into the people of God without having to be circumcised, without having to bear on their body the mark of God's relationship with Israel. Now this was an extremely important decision and it only makes sense if what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 is true. He wrote, in Christ... In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. The early church believed this. And so when we read in Acts chapter 15, we, when we read, about the, we read about the very good news that God cleans our lives up through faith. Look at verse 9. 
Acts chapter 15, verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Circumcision marks the Jews as God's people in their bodies, but Christians are marked in their bodies by baptism. This was a massive decision. We belong to God. Not because of anything we've done, not circumcision, not because of being sexually pure. We belong to God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross and in the resurrection. Now you might think, this is where it gets interesting. You might think that this opens the door to doing whatever you want with your genitals. Right here in Acts chapter 15, we see that the early church refused to bind Gentile Christians to illegal obedience to the Jewish laws. So surely, the argument is often made, the Old Testament's traditional biblical restrictions on sex can also be thrown out. Faith, not rules. The problem with this is they keep going in Acts chapter 15. And we see that as they continue to go, that while the Gentile converts do not have to be circumcised, they absolutely are expected to live their lives in a way that bears witness through their bodies to who God is and what Christ has done. They will not have to be circumcised, but they will have to change their lives to come into conformity through their bodily behavior with the image of who God is. They will not be bound by the full weight of the Old Testament laws, but all believers are still expected to live according to what they call the essentials. This is in verse 28. Acts chapter 15, verse 28. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than the essentials. These requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. (laughs) Now, it's significant that these essentials include only two things. The first is anti-idolatry. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, strangled blood, all that kind of stuff. That's the idol system. And the second is abstain from sexual immorality. So right here, right in the middle of a council that's recognizing the gospel of grace and the gospel of faith, right in the middle of this, of recognizing that we are free in Christ, sexual boundaries are reaffirmed and cemented as an essential part of Christianity. Right here, where the early church recognized that Christianity will have a new relationship to the Old Testament law, the church also recognized that the sexual ethics of the Old Testament continue to bind us. Look back at verse 3. Acts chapter 15, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy... To all their brothers. This kind of marks all of chapter 15. Right in the middle of this this 
this joy that the church is seeing in lives changed by the grace of Jesus Christ, they bind people to sexual morality as defined in the Old Testament. This is not legalism. This is not some hyper-focus on arbitrary moral rules. Sexual ethics are somehow essential to Christianity and the gospel. They are part of the way that God changes our lives, helping us to become more and more fully human and more and more like Jesus and more and more faithful to bearing God's image in the world today. Sex matters because faithful sex testifies to the power and the character of a God who graciously saves. Sex and your soul are mysteriously connected. And it's the burden of this whole series to help us see that and believe it and feel it in our guts and grow in our ability to explain that to others who have a different worldview. So the first reason we need to spend this evening and the sec next eight Sunday evenings talking about sex is because sex really, really, really matters. Number two, won't be as long. We need to have this series because we need God's help to live up to God's standard. The vision that God gives us for sex and relationships in Scripture, it is as tough and demanding today as it has ever been. Each one of us is complicated sexually. Each one of us has complicated sexual desires. And the constraint of those desires is an act of agonizing self-denial. And many of us struggle to be faithful to self-denial in both heterosexual and homosexual forms. For some, it's a seasonal struggle. For others, it's a daily struggle. And too often, the church has failed to help people with the struggle. And to its shame, too often the church has only made, it's only made it more difficult for people in this struggle. So we need to do this series because we need to help one another. We need help. The married and the unmarried. The heterosexually attracted and the same-sex attracted. We need help. We need to help each other live into the Christian vision of sexual wholeness, holiness, and flourishing. And so we're doing this series because we're committed to helping one another with grace and patience and hope. That's the second reason. The Church of the Incarnation, an early church, a number of you are here, and Steve Hay from Asbury is here. These are churches that will continue to be places in which each one of us, with all of our complicated sexual experiences and desires, we will be both welcomed and nurtured into what God calls us to be. Number three. We need to have this series because when it comes to sex and gender and marriage and relationships, these are massively complex issues. Many of you have talked with me about the really difficult challenges facing, um, that you're facing in this whole area. Many of us feel overwhelmed by the complicated character of this issue and its implications for our lives and our friendships 
in our families, in our country, in our church. And you're not wrong to be overwhelmed. And you're not wrong to be confused. This is as complicated an issue as most of us will face in our lifetimes. And even the most reflective among us are still at the beginning of untangling the meaning of what's going on in our culture. The reason for this, of course, is that sex is never about just sex. It's never about just one thing. It's about many things. And figuring out all of those things is really hard work. Now, to be clear, Christianity has a very simple, clear, unambiguous, consistent teaching regarding sexual behavior. It's this. Sexual behavior is only good and appropriate within the bonds of a heterosexual marriage. It's very simple to say. Our church will continue to embrace the Christian church's historic teaching on marriage in the household. We are a Christian congregation whose identity is rooted in the Trinity, the scriptures, the historic teachings and practices of the Christian faith. And the overwhelming scriptural and historical teaching of the church is that marriage is created by God to be a permanent monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. And outside of this kind of marriage, all of us, whatever our gender, whatever the object of our sexual desires, we are all to live lives of celibate chastity. That's the clear, unambiguous, historic teaching of the church. And yet, why? Why is that what the church teaches? That's where it gets difficult. Naming it is easy, but it is no longer easy to understand the logic of it, the reasons behind it. And on top of that, how do we live it out in all the complicated issues that we face? And and even on top of that, it is becoming virtually impossible to persuade other people of the Christian vision of sex and gender and relationships. And so we need this series because, one, sex is important. And two, we need the church's help to fulfill God's vision of holiness through our sexuality. And three, the subject is so very complicated. Number four. Christians and the Christian vision of of, of sex no longer sits at the center of society. And so we need the church to equip us as a minority missionary society in this secular age. There's a missionary need. There's a holiness need. There's an intellectual need. There's a missionary need. One of the church's greatest challenges in America for the past decade or two and for the foreseeable future is the need to come to terms with the fact that we do not live in a Christian age anymore. We live in a secular age. And the recent developments with regard to sex and gender and marriage is little more than the latest, and to be honest, wholly predictable evidence of the fact that we've shifted. And so I want to urge you to be deeply realistic about the nature of society right now. The sociologist Peter Berger coined the term cognitive minority. He uses this term, a cognitive minority, to describe those of us whose views about the world differ significantly from the mainstream of the surrounding culture. 
Christians are now and will be for a very long time the cognitive minority, one of the cognitive minorities. And Berger contends that to survive in that setting, you've got to start acting like you're a minority and stop acting like you're in the majority. Christians have occupied the cultural mainstream in America for so long that many Christians find the idea of being a minority difficult to stomach, never mind the thought of acting like a minority. But we need to make the adjustment, and very quickly, because in addition to having become a cognitive minority, Christians are now also viewed as an immoral minority. A family in our church is dealing right now with our government's disagreement over a particular way they're parenting. And it is fundamentally a disagreement on a Christian view. And and, and the government agency they're wrapped up in is accusing them of immorality. In other words, as well as having different beliefs from everybody else, we are now frequently viewed as inferior morally. This puts us in a social and psychological space that is fraught with danger. Christian beliefs are frequently viewed as morally dangerous and antithetical to human well-being. That our beliefs about this stuff causes people harm. We are not representatives of a majority whose task it is to reclaim a Christian America. We are representatives of a minority whose task it is to re-evangelize a secular West. And so we are doing this series in order to equip ourselves intellectually and morally and spiritually and relationally and strategically to live as missionary people because we are. And finally, we're doing this series because the church has lost credibility on the issue. And as a result, so many of us are losing confidence on the issue. We need to learn to take some criticism squarely on the chin. The history of the church in the sphere of human sexuality is disfigured by shame and hypocrisy. And we need to own up to that. Too often the church has allowed a deficient, sub-Christian view of sex to dominate our communities and shape our attitudes. And this makes us look harsh and judge people and judgmental. And many people have felt diminished and excluded because of this. And rather than serving the vulnerable and the poor, our moral convictions have been used as weapons to beat them over the head with. Too many of us have been so busy building our moral vision around what we're against that we forgot to ask what we're actually for. And we need to come clean about this. And so what I want in this series is to kind of shift us into a better story. Not you're wrong. I want us to out-delight To show that the Christian story delivers. And then, there is the heart-wrenching 
sexual abuse crisis going on in too many churches. What is coming to light in Pennsylvania right now is really, really terrible. And while the very first and most important issue is the victims, their dignity, their suffering, their suffering, we also need to recognize that the fallout of the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, and not just the Catholic Church, it's the one in the news right now, that it has marginalized the church's ability to provide leadership on this issue. So many churches have made terrible mistakes with regard to gender and sex. In the church, we have seen blatant hypocrisy, the awful persecution and mistreatment of the LGBTQ community, restrictive and discriminatory gender roles, marriage-centric, family-centric cultures that marginalize unmarried people, and then there's our inadequate understanding of abuse and its impact on sexual behavior. And, and so the fifth reason we need this series is because as an institution, the Christian church has lost credibility when it comes to sexual ethics, and we've got to come to grips with that, and we've got to, in the midst of no credibility, do the amazingly difficult thing of rediscovering confidence on the traditional Christian teaching on sex and marriage. It is good news. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, the Christian vision of sex is a story charged with hope and freedom and optimism, and dignity, and grace. It is a story that we can tell with inspiration and passion. It is a story that we, we, we need to tell in words, yes, but also we put it on display in our lives, real lives, real sexual lives lived in real families, and real communities, and real houses, and real neighborhoods. And so I want this series to be encouraging in the midst of this complicated, painful, confusing moment, we must not lose heart. Instead, the joy of the Lord, even on this issue, must be our strength. We must continue to rejoice that Christ is our life. Yes, we are in a moment that is profoundly challenging for the Christian church in the West. But even so, this cultural moment also brings with it grace. And that grace is this. For many of us, the experience of being stripped of the false consolations of being a majority. Consolations of ease and power. Of prestige of acceptance and affirmation, this stripping away holds the potential of opening us up to the possibility of the only true consolation, delighted union with the Holy Trinity through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of our every good. His presence is in our every joy. He is our keeper in every trial. He is our refuge in every moment, both now and forevermore. And because of this, I want to urge you to greet these days, not simply with alarm and not even with mere resolve, but let's rise up and greet them with joy. Christ is our life. 
Christ is our life and our calling together is to live in such a way that this life might through us become the life of the world. These are the five reasons. I think it's worth nine Sunday nights for us to gather here. Now, like a person learning to drive a stick shift, I'm going to jarringly transition. I want to give you some orientation so that both you know what to expect and if you know of anyone who you think for whom you think this would be good or a particular subject would be good. So for the next three weeks, we're going to deal with culture. What is it about our cultural moment that makes the Christian vision of sexuality naive at best and downright repressive and immoral at worst? Why does the church's view of sex fail to resonate, not just with our society, but with what feels like a majority of the people in the church itself? Why is it that it feels to us harsh? That'll be the next three weeks. And primarily, it's rooted in stories our, to our culture is telling around three subjects around the issue of identity, around the issue of freedom, and around the issue of love. And so we're going to spend a week on each of these. What are, the, what are the deep stories our culture is telling about identity, freedom, and love? That'll be the next three weeks. Then we'll spend four weeks on what is the Christian vision of sexuality, gender, and relationships. First, kind of a, a theology uh, of sex. Then... A theology of sex gone wrong. Then we're going to deal with the very complicated issue of gender and gender dysphoria. And finally, with same-sex attraction. And then, on the last week, we're going to deal with what it looks to, like to live this out as a church. 